Good morning, everyone. The time is 8.32 here in Manhattan. It's Monday, February 26th, and you're listening to our Variety News and Art show, Monday Morning Side, on WKCR. We're going to start everyone off today with a poetry reading. You'll be hearing this poetry segment each week from here on out. I hope you find it a nice way to start off your Monday morning. So today I have here a reading from the Mississippi Arts Commission's Poetry Out Loud contest, which was held in March 2010. This is Theme for English B by Langston Hughes, read by John Uzadinma. I chose this poem for today because Langston Hughes obviously had an impressive impact on Harlem and is, is known for his time in this neck of New York and actually did study at Columbia for a period of time. Though his relationship was tumultuous with the university, this poem was actually written during his time at Columbia um, for an assignment in an English class. So once again, this is Theme for English B by Langston Hughes, read by John Uzadinma. Theme for English B by Langston Hughes. The instructor said, go home and write a page tonight and let that page come out of you. Then it will be true. I wonder if it's that simple. I am 22, colored, born in Winston-Salem. I went to school there, then Durham, then here to this college on the hill above Harlem. I am the only colored student in my class. The steps from the hill lead down into Harlem through a park. Then I cross St. Nicholas, 8th Avenue, 7th, and I come to the Y, the Harlem Branch Y, where I take the elevator up to my room, sit down, and write this page. It's not easy to know what is true for you or me at 22, my age. But I guess I'm what I feel and see and hear. Harlem, I hear you. Hear you, hear me. We too, you, me, talk on this page. I hear New York too. Me, who? Well, I like to eat. Sleep, drink, and be in love. I like to work, read, learn, and understand life. I like a pipe for a Christmas present, or records, Bessie, Bop, or Bach. I guess being colored doesn't make me not like the same things other folks like who are other races. So, Will my page be colored that I write? Being me, it will not be white, but it will be a part of you, instructor. You are white, yet a part of me, as I am a part of you. That's American. Sometimes, perhaps, you don't want to be a part of me nor do I often want to be a part of you, but we are. That's true. As I learn from you, I guess you learn from me, although you're older and white and somewhat more free. This is my page for English B. Thank you. So once again, that was Theme for English B by Langston Hughes, read by John Uzadinma. So next up, we have a fantastic segment. It's an interview with the founder of a nonprofit based here in New York called Grassroots Grocery. So I hope you can learn more about this great organization today. Enjoy. Today I have with me Dan Zouderer, founder of the nonprofit Grassroots Grocery, Grassroots Grocery is a local organization based in New York and more specifically the Bronx. The organization strives to address food insecurity through a community-oriented approach. 
Dan, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, chat. So I understand that before starting Grassroots, you were actually a school teacher in the Bronx. So what led to this sudden career change? And can you point to an instant when you realized you wanted to pursue your passion for food justice? Sure, that's a great question. So I would say that, that um, you know, it, it, I, while it seems random, it was really born out of my experiencing a true need among the students and families um, with whom I worked at the American Dream School. Um, and so my, my students and families, especially during the pandemic, um, were, were dealing with, with lack of access to food. And many were opting out of, of visiting food pantries for so many different reasons. Um, and that's really what, what got me involved. It started as a teacher's um, passion project to get food um, right into the right to my students and their families you know started with raising money online um, so that I could send rice and beans and other staples to students and their families and it eventually evolved into a community fridge which was not definitely not the first community fridge out there it was just one of many um, was just part of a community of amazing organizers um, in my school community you know we, we, we launched one in Mott Haven um, where I was a teacher and um, and then that eventually just turned into a whole a whole nonprofit that whose mission has always really stayed focused on getting food into the core of the community by leveraging volunteerism and also even more importantly, but by leveraging real authentic community engagement. Um, so we partner with community leaders who are right in the core of the community who have really rushed really robust ties with their neighbors and we want to do everything that we can to empower these amazing hyper-local leaders with the tools and resources that they need to be able to provide for, for their neighbors um, because you know those who are closest to the problem are always are generally always able to, to, to deal with that problem um, the best mm -hmm. so it was really a natural evolution I guess is the short answer yeah, and I agree. The community-oriented approach is very important. Obviously, nonprofits take many different routes, but I completely understand why you approach the issue this way. Yeah, I mean, it was born in the community. You know, it was born as, as I, I was. I didn't live within the community, but I, as a school teacher, you know, I ran the after-school program in the South Bronx at the school where I was teaching the American Dream School, and um, you know, I got to know students and families really well. I speak Spanish. Um, it was a bilingual school, and so it just worked with so many amazing resilient families that just wanted to understand their needs better and wanted to be able to provide resources. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it was really born, born out of being in a community um, and, and listening to the needs of that community and then, you know, trying to create a solution that, that embodied those needs. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you briefly mentioned the community fridge distribution style. Can you expand on why you chose that approach as opposed to a traditional food bank location? Sure. So, well, just to step, take a step back, community fridges are just one of the, of, of the things that we do at Grassroots Grocery. Um, and so, you know, what we're really trying to do with community fridges is just figure out a way to keep them filled consistently. Um, but we don't want to do that by providing, by stocking them with food that we source. Instead, what we want to do is we want to catalyze the community itself to fill up those fridges. Um, and so, for example, on the Upper East Side, we are working um, with a NYCHA development, a New York City Housing Authority development on 92nd Street and 1st Avenue. Um, and there are so many institutions around that are able to have excess food. In particular, we're working a lot with high school students and middle school students who are rescuing food out of their cafeterias that would have otherwise gone to waste and bringing that food to the community fridge. Um, and so that's kind of one piece of the work that we do. We've helped, we help, uh, there are six fridges throughout Harlem and the Bronx that we've helped set up. Um, and then I guess the question is, is why, um, you know, I, I think there are a lot of reasons. One is, is that, um, many New Yorkers who were, and this is not true in just New York, but many people, who are in need of food are are not visiting institutional food pantries. Institutional food pantries do amazing work at a huge scale, but there are some people that are always going to opt out of that institutional solution. Mm -hmm. And so our job, what I see one of our core competencies being is thinking very deeply about how can we reach those 
in a more community-centric way who might be opting out of more institutional options like food pantries. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the real answer to that. Um, But then really the work that we do expands far beyond just community fridges in the sense that one of the things that I learned early on is that there are so many grassroots organizers. We call them grassroots grocers because, you know, our brand is grassroots Mm -hmm. grocery. Um, And there are so many organizers that have deep ties with their people. And so if we could just provide them with food directly, Mm -hmm. then they can do what they know best, which is to provide for their neighbors. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's the other aspect of our program. And and, and that's what we call rapid rescue, where we are um, working in partnership with another amazing nonprofit called Sharing Excess. And we are going to the Hunts Point produce market, which is the biggest wholesale produce market in the entire world. And we're taking surplus food there and we are bringing it directly into the core of the community, working directly with these grassroots grocers, with hyper-local community leaders who are then giving the food out to their people. Um, Mm -hmm. Every Saturday we are doing that as a volunteer-powered approach. We call it a produce party. It happens in the Bronx. And that happens every Saturday that anybody is welcome to come and volunteer at, even if you don't have a vehicle um, to deliver it to a grassroots grocer, we still need you to help unload the truck, help sort through produce, and help you know load it up into the, the cars of the volunteer drivers who are coming to deliver that produce. Um, and then during the week, we take that same produce and we bring it on a truck directly to these grassroots grocers. Um, so we're reaching um, you know parent coordinators at schools, for example. And what I love about this, and it really resonates with my roots as a teacher, is that kids or, you know, older, older, not all kids, but, you know, um, uh, students on their way home from, from school can take a bag of fresh produce home to their families. Um, mm-hmm. Because, again, it, and this is, again, tackling the same issue that so many people are opting out of these more institutional options. So what if we can figure out a way to do this at an even bigger scale yeah. where, where just schools are able to provide, you know, imagine if every school gave out fresh food on the way home. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine if every medical clinic had produce available to take home for patients that were seed, that were they were there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we really like to think through those non-traditional food access options, whether it's through a community fridge or whether it's through working directly with a community leader who has robust ties with people that they know need it the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and you touched on something that I think is so special about grassroots, which is it addresses community well-being and food security, but also the environmental issue that comes with food Uh waste, which is, I think, something that has been plaguing our society for a long time. And you always go into grocery stores and just see like an infinite amount of produce, but it obviously all has a shelf life. So, Exactly. Um, And and so one of the statistics that, that was jarring to me when I first discovered it is that 7 billion pounds of food are going to waste every year in New York State alone. Wow. Yeah, 7... Billion. When I do this with um, little ones, when I do this, like, you know, at school assemblies mm-hmm. and things, I tell them to picture a fully grown adult elephant, and then I tell <laughs> them to multiply that in their head by seven hundred thousand, because that's the amount of food and weight that we are wasting mm-hmm. every year in just New York State alone. Um, and so you're right. You know, th- th- there is an overabundance of supply, and so the real question is not one of is there enough food to feed everyone because there most certainly is the question is how can we tackle the logistics um and so that's and and a lot of that you know we found being really successful um we found this community engagement approach to be one of the amazing ways to do it because we can you know we can take a truck filled with produce and bring it right right to a community that's going to give it out that same day. Mm-hmm. And so even if there's produce that has, you know, only two or three days of shelf life left on it, and so at the wholesale level, it's too late for a grocer to buy it, um, if you give that out to a community, that community can get it right into the hands of people, and they, and they can bypass the time that it would need to sit on a shelf mm-hmm. in a retail store. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we think through issues like that um, in order to solve these logistical questions. Yeah. Like, you know, what are you going to do with produce that, that just has two days left at the wholesale level, right? You can't, 
you can't just you can't uh, sell it anymore. And it's also hard to give it to a food pantry because then it just has the same problem that it had at the wholesale market, which is that the food pantry then has to figure out how do you get all that produce out at once. Mm-hmm. And so by really getting into the hyper local level, we're making sure that we are um, being really efficient about making sure that all of that food that we're rescuing is going out the same day. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned, obviously, the collaborative relationship with Hunts Point Produce Market and sharing excess. Can you talk about how you first uh, got connected with those two organizations and sure. why the symbiosis is so important? Sure. So um, we got connected with the Hunts Point Produce Market because I um, sent an Instagram message to Katzman Produce, which is one of the biggest vendors in the market. Um, and I said, hey. I am a teacher. I was a teacher at the time. I said, hey, I'm a teacher. I have students and their families that are dealing with food insecurity. I know that you have access to produce. Um, you know, is there anything that you can do for us? And I think, you know, I don't know if they responded um, immediately, but eventually we we just connected. And I, you know, had a Zoom call with Stephanie Katzman, who is the, the daughter of Stephen Katzman, who founded the company. Um, and she, you know, now kind of runs the, the show. And, uh, and she loved the idea of, of helping students. Um, and, and so that, that's really the, the way that we got connected to the market. And from there, you know, she was like, hey, Dan, if you, you, know, if you can show up with a truck on a Friday, um, we got produce for you. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's the way it started. Um, and then we just started making relationships with other vendors um, who wanted to follow in the footsteps of, of, of the Katzman family, who's been amazing. You know, they, they, the vendors at the Hunts Point Market have been so generous and so amazing. The salespeople, the vendors, the, the, uh, they're all just in, incredible in, in, their, in their goodwill. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's a really important piece about this is really making sure that the vendors understand the work that they're doing and the work that they're enabling by making sure that this produce gets into the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then in terms of sharing excess, what we learned um, is that sharing excess had really changed the way that produce was being donated from the vendors in the Philadelphia wholesale produce market. Um, they created a new process that centralized the donation of produce mm-hmm. um, in the Philadelphia market. And I heard about this and I actually went down to Philly to visit Evan, the CEO. Um, and we hit it off and really, you know, their approach resonated with me. And I learned also that they were on their way to open up in New York. And wow. so I thought, well, the best thing that I can do is connect them with, they already had a relationship surreptitiously enough. They actually had a relationship with Casting Produce already. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I thought to myself, well, now we know, you know, six vendors. And so the best thing that I can do for them is I can, first of all, advocate for their being there by, you know, by reaffirming to Katzman that they're making a good choice by working with Sherry Access, so we did that. Um, and also, I had developed a relationship with the CEO of the market, and Evan had also, but just being able to, you know, lend my support to this initiative and, and, and share how, how, how much I believe that, that, the, that the market needed a kind of way to centralize their donations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that was a piece of it. Um, and then also, the, the, the most helpful thing that we did is that we introduced them to all of our vendor partners that we were working with, you know, beyond just Katzman. Um, and so immediately once they got to the market, and even before they got to the market, we started doing this every Friday with just a truck that they would bring. Um, so that way we could double our capacity. We only had one truck. They brought an extra truck and we doubled our our rescues, right, during mm-hmm. the summer before they even had a stall. Um, and then once they got space in the market, we just doubled down and, and we said, hey, you know, we want you to meet all of our vendors that we're working with. And we want this to be a system where you guys are really focusing on these vendor relationships and building that out because you did it so well in Philadelphia. And what we have and what we've always been great at is forging partnerships with leaders in the community that need access to food for their neighbors. So let us focus on the community sourcing piece of it. Um, And so it's a beautiful separation of labor. So that's one of the reasons why the the symbiotic relationship is so important. Um, But then the the other is because the produce that sharing excess is, is taking from the vendors is, is, you know, is, is farther along on, on, on the, in most cases, is farther along on the life cycle of that piece of produce. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing about the produce industry is that, 
it's every every minute, every second that, that a pallet of corn is sitting there, it's rapidly declining in value. Right? Because it, it's perishable. Mm-hmm. And so sharing excess is getting it from the vendors at the time when it's probably too late to sell at the wholesale level. And so that means that whoever is going to take it needs to move it quickly into the heart of the community. Mm-hmm. And so sharing excess loves being able to work with us because they know that when we take it, we're going to bring it right to the schools, to the low-income housing developments, um, and to so many other locations. We're even working with medical clinics now um, where, where that food is going to get right out to people who need it. Um, and again, you know, skip out that time that it might have to sit in the back of a food pantry or that it might have to sit, um, you know, on, on the shelf in a, in a supermarket, um, which, which is, which is just too long for it to sit there given the fact that this produce is, 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 uh, toward the end of the life cycle. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as you said, this key role that grassroots takes on in distribution yeah. comes in the form of a Saturday produce party. So can you walk us through the yes. process right from uh, grocery store to community fridge and like exactly what the volunteers do at, on a Saturday with you. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so this is just one of the ways that we get produce into the community. Again, there's kind of three things that we do. Um, four things. One is this idea of starting up community fridges and thinking about how we can keep them filled. Um, and that's really a community sourced approach where we're working with students and families and other institutions that want to keep these fridges filled. So we're not actually providing the supply for these fridges. That's one thing. Um, we also then do um, bulk produce delivery to some of the major food access institutions. Um, we'll keep that a little bit on the DL for now because it's a pilot program, mm-hmm. um, but, but we'll share about it publicly soon um, And um, in terms of the players involved. But it's a very exciting thing that we're helping distribute um, produce um, to some of the major anti-hunger organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing we do during the week is we have a full-time driver who takes produce from the Hunts Point produce market that the guys at Sharing Excess are sourcing and is bringing it right to school partners and low-income housing developments and all of those amazing hyper-local players. Um, and then the fourth thing that we are doing is the produce party. Um, and so the produce party is basically where everybody – so we fill up the truck to the brim on Fridays and then we hold it overnight in a shopping center parking lot in the Bronx. And then on Saturday, we have – an amazing community of volunteers who comes, unloads the truck, sorts through the produce, and then delivers it into the community using their own vehicles. Mm. Um, and every Saturday now, we are reaching um, well over a thousand households. Um, wow. Last Saturday, we reached over 1,200 households. Um, the Saturday before, we reached over 1,400 households. Um, and we're always doing this with over 20, 20 hyper-local distribution hubs um, every single Saturday. Um, whether you know, Sometimes it's 25, sometimes it's 30. Um, we have 31 regular partners who receive a message. Uh, and that's the other piece of the work that we do is we really focus on the technology that, that helps uh, move, you know, put all these pieces together. Um, but but our, our our community partners receive a text message um, every week where they can opt in or out of a produce delivery. Um, and so you know we, we, we have 31 of those partners and so, so that's that's what the produce party is. Um, it's it's uh, you know people coming together to be a part of moving food into the heart of the community and it's really, it runs on volunteers mm-hmm. in the sense that our truck driver is not even there on Saturday. <laughs> um, you know, it's literally all volunteers that are coming in their own vehicles to take this produce and bring it into the core of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we also need people that don't have vehicles because they help us sort and pack the produce. They help us clean any produce that might be beyond consumable. Um, and so it's really a, a, a community effort through and through. Um, we've had over 4,000 people sign up to be volunteers um, and just in a very short period of time, you know, just a, a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have school groups that come and temple groups that come and, and student groups that come and, and uh, you know, corporate groups that come. And, and it just really speaks to our ethos of neighbors helping neighbors. 
where absolutely you know yeah it's just it's just a, a whole group it's a group effort mm-hmm. so and so just a little bit more on the volunteers. I know Grassroot is big on student engagement. You have both a teen ambassador program and a student yes. task force. So what mm-hmm. has your organization gained from partnering with the youth in particular? Mm, when you say youth, you mean at the college level or younger? Either. Just students in general and that, that demographic. Sure. So I'll give you a great example. Um, last year, it may have been the year before now, actually, um, a Stuyvesant student. Stuyvesant High School, um, one of the specialized schools in the city. Um, his name is Sky, and he was a senior at the time. And he sent me an email and said, we are noticing, or we were noticing that the food on our cafeteria share table, and a share table is a, is a, a place where students are able to leave food that they didn't eat, that they was still unopened. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like, we noticed that at the end of the period, this food was being thrown away. Um, and so we decided that we were going to collect it, keep it in a fridge in the school throughout the week, and then at the end of the week, bring it to different community-based organizations. Mm-hmm. And then they said, but we were having a problem in identifying community-based organizations that would take this food, even though it's wrapped, you know, they're apple slices or whole pieces of fruit or bags of carrots or, or, uh, or cartons of milk. They said, even though it's all, you know, sealed, um, some of these organizations that we've reached out to don't, aren't interested in, in taking it. Or they say that they can't take it because of guidelines from Feeding America. Um, and they wanted, they heard that we had a community fridge on the Upper East Side um, on 92nd Street and 1st Avenue, which is outside of a low-income housing development. And they said, hey, you know, some of us in this club we live on the Upper East Side. Can we drop off food in this community fridge? And I said, first of all, Sky, you never have to ask me. <laughs> you know, that's the whole mm-hmm. point of a community fridge. Um, we would love for you to do this, but, you know, n- never feel like you have to ask me again. Um, but also, you need to get your story told. And so I sent out a, a message to all of my reporter friends. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, on on New York One and Channel Two and Channel Four and and Five and Eleven. And Channel Two loved this story. And next thing you know, the kids at the Stuyvesant Food Security Club and I were being interviewed um, in a Channel Two newsroom. And we got to share with the world about Sky's story. Mm -hmm. And what's even more amazing is that the Drew Barrymore show... Wow. Was watching. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, wow, this kid Sky is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, can we get him on the Drew Barrymore show? And then they, these kids went on the Drew Barrymore show. Um, and what's even more amazing than that is that the DOE, the Department of Education in New York, got wind of what Sky and these students had been accomplishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they went to go visit these students and figure out how they were doing this. And now, just one year later, the DOE launched a school-wide policy change that allows principals of public schools in New York City to be able to donate their share table food directly into the community. Wow. And that's a systemic change that only happened because of grassroots initiatives like Sky's. Mm-hmm. And now Sky's brother, Will, who's, who was a little younger than him, had to take, took the mantelpiece for, for the Stuyvesant Food Security Club. And they're now running with it. And they can be so proud of themselves for not only creating a club that, that that's had lasting impact at Stuyvesant, but that also inspired the policymakers at the Department of Education to make a system-wide shift in the way that food could be donated at the school level. Um, and now we also have a whole community of students that are doing this across their own schools. Um, there's one amazing girl named uh, Maya who started her own organization called Fresh Opportunities, um, where she she's at Ramaz, an independent school, and she rescues cafeteria food that would have otherwise gone to waste with her with her fellow um, fellow students, um, 
and they they deliver that food to our community fridge on 92nd Street and First Ave. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a, an eighth grader, Mary Mount, that's doing this. And, and we have so now we have you know public school kids and private school kids doing this. And we convened an or, a, a a kind of a in partnership with another organization called FoodRecovery.org. We created a partnership um, where we are now every other month or so convening these students in virtually um, across all of these different schools in a group called the Student Food Recovery Task Force, where we are thinking through ways that students can just get this work amplified because they're sharing best practices. Um, the first meeting that we had, we had Will, the current you know Sky's brother, present to this audience of students. Um, and then we had Maya from Fresh Opportunities present to that whole her organization. Mm-hmm. And then most recently, we had um, Sophia and Eleanor, two girls at Nightingale, present about their solution, um, what they're doing with their excess cafeteria food. Um, and, and on that same meeting, we also had Stephen O'Brien, who's the director of nutrition services for the DOE, um, speak about this policy change that was inspired by, by Sky and, and his brother's club. Um, and so it's been just an amazing, um, and it's all thanks to students, you know. The, the only other thing that I will say about student engagement, I mean, there's so many things to say, but another amazingly helpful thing has been students that are proficient in tech. Um, mm-hmm. We had a student group called Hack for Impact create two different portals for us. Um, one was a volunteer portal that gamifies the volunteer experience in an online community. And then the other is an admin portal that streamlines our operations for our Saturday volunteering program. Um, and these were both portals that were custom coded portals that were built by college students at UMD. And we've had so many other students that are interns on the tech side who have come and help us, helped us either, you know, keep these, these portals running or implement features in them or also work in the low code, no code space to create really impressive um, automations that are making our impact so much more profound. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all student-led work. Um, so we love students, you know, they, they, <laughs> they shoot videos for us. They take photos for us. They, they implement technology for us. They code apps for us. You know, I mean, students are, are really where it's at at Grassroots Grocery. Yeah, absolutely. I think the two things that you really touched on are collaboration and visibility. And I think you're right. Students are so good at both of those things. And it's just great to see, um, such a collaborative impact being made. I'm sure you agree. Um, Absolutely. And lastly, just to round us out, I know you've been working your way downtown. You just mentioned the Upper East Side Community Fridge. But just more broadly, what is your vision for grassroots in the future? Sure. So, so I think that we're still at an amazing stage where we've proven out a couple things. We've proven that this produce party concept works, at least in one location. It happens every Saturday without fail. Um, we've proven that we can get produce directly from the Hunts Point market to schools and medical clinics and other, I guess you'd call them non-traditional food access areas. Um, and we've even proven that you can really get some real volunteer momentum and excitement around filling up community fridges up the street, um, or on the sidewalk, not right in the street. (laughs) Um, and, um, and so what's at the core of all of this is community-centric food justice. And so I really see us as an organization as we grow that's always focused on ensuring that we can nourish our neighbors collectively with a community-centric approach, whether it's a community fridge or whether it's dropping produce off right into the heart of a school, that's where our real 
secret sauces is in using the power of volunteers and using the power of community to get food right into the heart of the community. You know, exactly how big we go and what direction we go in, I think is still an open question. There are a lot of questions that we still need to answer about supply and about the way that community fridges can work. And and we're actually in a stage right now where we're um, doing some serious hiring. We're growing our team. Um, And so once we can kind of answer some of those questions and and, and get a a bigger team, um, then I I think that we'll have a a more kind of crystallized answer in terms of direction. Mm -hmm. Um, But for now, we're just in that amazing space where we just get to play with possibility mm-hmm. and we get to really nurture our community connections and, and grow our, our, our volunteer community, um, and just see where, see where it takes us. Um, and so that, that couldn't be a more exciting place to be in. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's great to hear. So that makes the end of our interview today. Once again, that was Dan Zouder, founder of nonprofit Grassroots Grocery, which is a organization based right here in New York, addressing food insecurity through a community-oriented approach. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, thanks for doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. All right. So once again, that was Dan Zouderer with Grassroots Grocery. If you want to find out more about that fantastic organization, you can go to grassrootsgrocery.org, again, to find out about all of the programs and volunteer work that he was talking about. So our next segment we have is Third Places, semi-recurring segment, so some of you may have heard it before. Um, For a little background, though, I am a student in the School of General Studies, so I spent my first two years abroad. And when I came to Morningside Heights, I really found that I had to rediscover my third places, which for anyone that doesn't know, uh, third places is a sociological term coined by Ray Oldenburg in his book, The Great Good Place. This term refers to a place which is neither your home, which is considered your first place, nor your workplace. Um, And once again, if you're just tuning in, this is WKCR FM New York and WKCR HD That's 89.9 on your dial or WKCR.org if you're tuning in online. And we are discussing third places. So Oldenburg's list has eight characteristics that make up a quality first place, including neutral ground. It's a leveling place. Conversation is the main appeal. It's physically accessible. It has regulars. It maintains a low profile, lively atmosphere, and provides a similar comfort to home. So lots of psychologists recognize the merits of a third place for relationship building. And I think really with social media and COVID and everything that we've all been through the past couple of years, it's more important than ever to make sure we have a place like that. Um, So today I have with me Joa, who is a student at Columbia. And how long have you been here in New York? I've been in New York about maybe six months. Yeah. Yeah. So it's probably about the same as you. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Morningside Heights, right. <laughs> and did you find it difficult when you first got to New York to find a third place where you could decompress from yeah. your home environment? Yeah, it was okay. So yeah, moving to New York, you move into like, a, you know, a shoebox. And uh, <laughs> when you're when you're in your shoebox, you're like, I can't relax here. I need to find some place where I can, you know, relax and and enjoy my time and spend my time and study and do all these things so it took me a second um but after I got over this like brief period of like isolation you just find your your spaces here in New York and I'm very happy to have found you know a bunch of spots that I really love Mm -hmm. and what would you say is your primary third place now oh man there's a few um so like normally during the week probably like Hungarian pastry shop but like I have this ritual that I that I ritual in quotations uh, that I go through on my Thursdays um, that I went through on my Tuesdays last semester, um, but this this semester it's Thursdays where I go down to Greenwich Village because um, that's where my therapist's office is. And uh, after therapy, I I go to Cafe Reggio and I do some homework, uh, often translating some ancient Greek or some Latin and. I sit there and I just talk to people and I've made some friends and it, it's been it's been wonderful finding that spot and it's actually helped me find even more spots around there um, that 
you know, NYU, Washington Square Park area. I'll spend some time in the park. Um, I'll also spend some time at this uh, little shop called Chess Forum where you can just go into the back and you can play chess with the people who are there. And it, you know, it costs money, but they never actually make you pay. <laughs> and um, I, also, I also made a friend uh, who's a chess hustler in the park. Um, and we've, we've be, since become friends and we've played, we play chess all the time. His name is Johnny Chess, New York City. What a great name. I know, right? Yeah, I, I've, I've had such a great time just like discovering little places here in New York that I didn't feel like I could discover when I was an undergrad just because New York is so walkable and the transportation can be very good as we know it might not always be (laughs) but uh, in some like yeah just like playing chess sitting in a cafe doing my homework but also reading and and connecting with other people I think are very important things that sometimes we take for granted absolutely and I think again in a city as large as New York it can be difficult to actually force yourself to leave your neighborhood I know I grapple with that sometimes, like, especially during the week, you get caught up and sometimes I end up not even going really that far downtown. So it's nice to have a ritual, I agree, and like a routine of some sort. You always go to a certain spot on a certain day. And would you say you're recognized as a regular now at either of those places? Oh, I I would say so. Yeah, I would say that the regular once the regulars recognize you and you're (laughs) you're you know you're already chill with the regulars, or once the like the staff of the place that operates you know um, recognize you, then you then you're not necessarily a regular, but you're like on that path. And I think to be a regular is to just let the place that you're a regular at know that you really appreciate them. Mm-hmm. in general, I think. And so as much as maybe I, because I'm only there a few times a week necessarily, uh, I, even though I might not be like the most regular of regulars, it's still a place I really appreciate, Cafe Reggio specifically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think like, again, like Ray Oldenburg points to having that recognition in a space outside of your home or your school environment is very good for the psyche. And I think that like it's, super important too to meet people outside of your typical social circles you know people of different ages people from different places New York is such a melting pot and if you put yourself in that position you can really find some fantastic people that you would have never met otherwise yeah seriously if and and because it's downtown because Cafe Reggio is downtown it it, it can get everybody from you know the uptown downtown, midtown, but also Brooklyn, Queens. People I've met at Cafe Reggio come from all places in the city, and and that's just a a wonderful thing because it is in such a central area and a a great neighborhood. I I think that that's really important. And it it really makes me happy that that these places still exist because if they didn't, it'd be be really hard to uh, connect with people in this, you know, modern you know technology centered world yeah absolutely and I think that COVID was a dire time everywhere but especially in the city and I do think there was a period where people weren't sure if a lot of these smaller businesses were gonna make it back so it's really good to see Um, and I feel like I don't know do you think that New York City is back to normal like what would you say I feel like it's kind of shockingly so but yeah after visiting New York a few times last year and visiting Columbia, preparing to come here, I, I can say that the city has even changed so much in the year, year plus since I've like first like started like coming here. So I I definitely think that like parts of the city, you know, of course, will never be the same. But as much as that's the case, also. I, I think I'd like to say that there's some vibrancy that is that is coming back. And I think that that's really nice. Yeah, agreed. Especially with the warmer months. I, I don't know how many of you guys believe in Puxatawney Phil, but supposedly <laughs> we're spo- supposed to have a early spring. And I mean, Wednesday is going to be like 
almost 70 degrees. So yeah, today high of 54. Yeah. Wow. So guys, get outside, enjoy your third places or find a new one. You can try Cafe Reggio if you are so inclined. Um, I know we have listeners from all over the place, but make sure you know, you get outside of your home, you get outside of your work environment, and you find some place that, again, almost feels a bit like home. I think it's very important. I agree. And I also think that one of these one of these things that has helped me is is that once you start talking to people about, you know, at these third places, then you find out about even more third places that you weren't even aware of yet. And you get to figure out these other people's third places. And then you just kind of start this engine where you find more and more and make more and more friends and meet more and more people and enjoy everything that this wonderful city has to offer. Agreed. And I think really with New York, you kind of naturalize. I think the longer you're here, the more you feel like you belong here because it's it's an overwhelming city. I'm sure most of you agree with that sentiment, but it does help to see familiar faces and it, it shrinks, you know, like New York does shrink. You would never think it, but... Yeah, it's you a do small start world. running into people. Yeah, it's a small a world. Small world out there. Yeah, absolutely. I I'm very I'm very happy with my choice to to come to New York because of the opportunities that have been afforded to me here. And yeah, that that's just and then and I and I owe a lot of that to the third places that I choose to spend my time in. Yeah, I think. New York is an interesting place because I think you almost have to live there to know if it's your forever place or not. (laughs) I think some people get to New York and they realize like their whole world has turned upside down and they want to be there forever. And some people couldn't want to be farther away. But I I do really I really think you have to live here to know that for sure. Yeah, I love living here. I, I, I went to undergrad in Chicago. So I, I, and I, and I grew up just outside of the city. So I, or just outside of the city of Chicago, I should say. Um, so used to calling Chicago the city. Yeah, I um, know. But just it's not the, the city now. It's not the city here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so going to undergrad in Chicago was, was awesome, but a completely different experience for third places. Uh, the third places in Chicago were great and I loved them but they took longer to get to and were harder to get to. And it just wasn't as conducive to, you know, connection because of that, because they were more spread out and, and more isolated. Chicago is a much more car-centric city. Yeah. So coming to a city that's very walkable, like if I wanted to, I could feasibly walk down to Cafe Reggio. Mm-hmm. It would take forever, but like I, I could feasibly walk. I know on a nice day, sometimes you gotta. I know, and, and I've walked from that area back up here before, and it's taken like two, three hours. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I'm like, wow, that was so worth it because you just put your phone in your pocket. And then not only do you just like wander the grid, but you wander into all these little other shops and meet all these interesting people who do their own thing here in New York that you never would have met had you taken the subway. Yeah, I also think New York is a great city to be alone in, which is not true of all places. But like I I think it's partially the people watching. Again, it's partially just like the opportunity, the stores, um, the restaurants. But like it's a fantastic city to just take a walk by yourself. I actually was going to the Met the other day and the one train unannounced skipped like three of the stops that I could have gotten off at. So I ended up taking a really long walk um, from the West side over to the Met. And it was great. It was like the first warm day, honestly, all winter. And like the park was full and it was just so fun. Like I had such a great time just people watching and like, it wasn't even part of my plan for the day, but it ended up being so nice. Yeah. I, I do love a walk. I remember when I first moved here, I think I walked to the Met from my apartment, which is in Morningside. I think I walked to the Met at least two or three times mm-hmm. because, I first of all, I love the Met. It's a great place, and I'm very thankful that Columbia has, you know, their deal with the Met where we can get in for free. Yeah, and a lot of um, museums have resident deals, too. Really? Yeah. Um, including for Connecticut and New Jersey residents, which if you're a Connecticut person like I am— it's a great deal that you may not know of. 
Yeah, I and 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 that's that's another powerful thing too. All these like good museum spaces are are very important to have. But it walking through the park and just walking, it makes you feel like the romantic side of life a little bit. And I think that that's pretty wonderful, if I might say so. Agreed. And what do you think about New Yorkers? I found New Yorkers are very, well, actually, it depends. Many are sociable, not all. (laughs) I mean, you can obviously tell when someone's a New Yorker because um, they don't don't care about, like, the things that, you know, a non-New Yorker would care about seeing. And also, you can tell if someone's a New Yorker because they have a specific, like, you know, gravity in their voice that I find <laughs> is really is really fun and and I and I think that I can't dis- I I've met so many transplants here and I've met so many New Yorkers here um, but it's 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 really funny because a lot of transplants want to be New Yorkers and want a lot of New Yorkers don't want to be associated with these transplants of yeah. course so you're meeting people who don't want to be like each other but want to be like each other Mm -hmm. and i so it's it's fun yeah that's an interesting take i mean i think that's one of the special things about new york too there's nothing better than a real new yorker but at the same time it's cool to have a place that draws people from all around the world um and you'll meet the coolest people with the funniest connections you know like yeah you could meet someone from the exact town you grew up in or yeah do you think that you could if it, since like as a transplant, do you think that you could become a New Yorker, or do you think that you're forever, you know, a transplant? I think you're forever a transplant, and I'm sure any of the New Yorkers listening would agree with yeah. that. I don't want to walk myself into a hole, but I do think like you become more New York the longer you live here, a mm-hmm. thousand percent. I don't know if you can ever reach true New Yorker status, no. unfortunately, but maybe your kids can if you you know. Oh yeah, have kids city here. kids are something else they're awesome interesting <laughs> interesting interesting people i know those. it's always crazy when i see like a seven-year-old on the subway by themselves they're <laughs> they're well, independent they they have fun i guess right yeah. yeah i don't know i i i've i've had my experiences just like encountering random you know you know people and and they they always have a lot of fun things to say about you know n- these new yorkers kids and and, uh, you know everything and it's it's really interesting to hear i I think that that's what's really important i i i hope that people uh will still talk to each other i i I want people to still you know like just like yeah just like talk to each other there's a big conversation surrounding like covid introvertedness and shyness and i think that's very real thing that happened i mean you take being like in your room only interacting with your relatives and the people for online. a couple months yeah. and like that does a lot to a person. So I think I honestly think we're still in a space of recovery from that. And I think you can very much tell from a lot of social interactions that, you know, it's it's weird for the human psyche to lose social interaction like that. It, it It's definitely weird. And I I think that we're forever changed as as a as a, as a people because. This is a, that was a worldwide event that truly affected like all of the communicative world, and that 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 cannot be understated. Yeah, agreed. It's interesting. Um, I'm in a class called Sexuality and Citizenship in the United States. It's a fascinating class, but right now we're talking about the AIDS epidemic, which obviously, especially for New York and San Francisco, was devastating. Um. But my professor was saying, he was like, you know, it's very different to teach people that have lived through a pandemic because he's been teaching this class since before COVID, you know, and it's a huge change because people almost understand a little bit. And I mean, obviously very different situations, but, you know, he was just kind of bringing to light that there's something to that shared experience that you really don't understand unless you've lived through it. Yeah. And I think now to have an entire generation, like I wonder, it's going to be interesting to have a new generation of kids that did not live through COVID. Yeah. And, you know, like to, to raise kids, like will we talk about it with future generations? That's like what kind of place in history will it hold? Because I do think it changed a lot of things for us. Like it changed the way people work. It changed the way people travel. Like, Yeah. And I think that even on – even. Even, like, just, like, the way that we talk to each other. Like, 
I think that it's completely different now. And so these new, this new generation of kids, what, like, what happens to them if they don't hear about this pandemic from their people who are older than them? Mm-hmm. Like, what happens if they're so confined to the online, to, to spaces like that, that they don't really hear about it except from, you know, some form of internet, you know, yeah. not from the mouth of another person. And I think it's really, I think that's really interesting. And that's why I'm, I, I really want, I really want people to continue to talk to each other, even though it's kind of hard, like just meeting random people as, as, as hard as that is and as scary as that can be. Like, I think that's really, really important. And that's why I'm so thankful for these third places because, and I'm so thankful that, you know, even though the pandemic, you know, theoretically it, it still isn't over, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that, you know, I can go to a place and to talk to people. Absolutely. And I think Americans, too, have to be careful because I do think there's an American mindset of keeping to yourself a little bit, especially in a city like this. And I think you guys should challenge yourselves. I know I will try to. Um, but make connections. Put yourself out there. You can find some really, really cool people and some really cool opportunities. Yeah. Have because a coffee of it. with someone. Enjoy your life. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks, Joe, for being here today. That was a lovely conversation. Once again, go out and find your third place. This has been Monday Morning Side. Happy Monday. I'm Macy hinslick Barrand, and I will see you all next week. <laughs>